That sounds good. Okay, audience participation portion of the sermon. I like to do this every now and then. Get your hand ready. All right, I need to see everybody's hand on one of the two next questions that I ask, okay? So be ready. Do you like to get the good news first and the bad news later? Or do you like to get the bad news first, get that out of the way, and then get the good news? All right, way more people in the second. That's how it's in my notes, so I was going to do that anyway. But it's nice to know that I'm running with the majority. Here's the bad news. I hate to start with bad news, but let's get it out of the way because I got good news coming. All right, the bad news is you have been lied to. Or as they would say in the South, you've been lied to. You have been lied to over and over and over throughout the course of your life. But here's the good news. God loves you enough to tell you the truth. And the truth is really good news. So what do I mean when I say you've been lied to? I mean that the world lies to each and every one of us 24-7, 365. It spends billions of dollars a year doing it, lying to you over and over and over, lying to you about what's important, lying to you about what really matters, lying to you about what you should value, and lying to you about what everyone else values about you. You've been lied to. But God loves you enough to tell you the truth. And sadly... I read these words, and they just rang so true to me, and it was a convicting statement. It's from Michael Blue's book, Free to Follow. He says, to a large extent, the world has been far more effective at making disciples than the church has. Think about that for a moment. The world has been more effective at making disciples of the world than the church has at making disciples of Jesus. In recent years, we all bemoan the decline of Christianity in places where it has been the established culture for some time. And the shift almost always happens when the focus gets off of disciple making. Now, I have hope, great hope in the church. I believe when Jesus said that the church would prevail and and that heaven would move forward and that the kingdom of God would expand and his righteousness and peace would expand forever. And we see it happening in places around the world, but we also see places where the world seems to be more effective at making disciples of it than the church has been at making disciples of Jesus. And I have noticed on mission trips, I've been on four foreign mission trips, I've been in places like China and Nicaragua and Peru, and I have noticed that secular companies and corporations have done a fantastic job of evangelizing those places with their products. Do you know what the number one most recognized symbol in the world is? Or trademark, or not symbol, trademark, company logo. Coca-Cola. Somebody down here got it right. I thought maybe it was Nike, but it is Coca-Cola. And I contest that everywhere I have been and everywhere any missionary has ever been, there's been a Coca-Cola label somewhere nearby. Coca-Cola has done a fantastic job of marketing their product. Now, Jesus is not a product, and the church is not a product, and we shouldn't be thinking about this in a marketing standpoint, but we should be thinking about making disciples. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so that's our marching orders. And it is somewhat discouraging to consider that caffeinated sugar water has done a better job at this than the church in many ways. And so we have work to do, and we're starting a new series today about the hope of the world, that we have uh, the best news ever. And we have to really believe that. And it's the best news for everyone in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And it's the best news for everyone everywhere. It's the gospel. 
that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We've got to get that message everywhere. Everywhere. And so the message series that we're starting today is titled Kingdom Culture. And there's really two parts to this idea or the main thesis of this series. The first is that we would understand what the culture of the kingdom is really like. That we have to understand what the kingdom culture is so that we can put it first, put it over. That line in between the two is intentional. That we would put the kingdom over the culture around us. We would put the kingdom of God over the culture around us. So we'll be describing kingdom culture each week, and we'll also be talking about how we can consistently put the kingdom over the culture in our lives. Another thing that's intentional in there is that the word culture is backwards. Because let me tell you something, the culture is backwards. The kingdom is right side up. The kingdom is where it's at. And sometimes people talk about it being an upside-down kingdom, and I've talked about this before. I won't go too long on this rant. But it is not an upside-down kingdom. It is an upside-down world. And if you've been flying upside-down your whole life, then the kingdom comes in. It looks like it's upside-down, but it's not. The kingdom is right-side-up. The kingdom is where it's at. We need to know what the kingdom is like. And so we'll be looking at stories, at parables, at events from Jesus' life, and we'll marry those each week with some early church teaching, something from the book of Acts or something from one of Paul's letters that, that makes this applicable to us in the church. And you may have noticed that the word kingdom has been around a lot. It's an annual theme. If you missed the week when I told you that we were going to be focusing on the kingdom this year, then you're like, man, what is with all the kingdom stuff? Well, it's intentional. We're going to be focusing on the kingdom. We started with kingdom first, putting the kingdom first in our lives. Then we talked last week about king, or this last series about kingdom power. How do we get more of God's kingdom power into our lives, individually in our lives, corporately as a church? And now we're talking about kingdom culture and how kingdom culture is different than the culture around us. The American dream and God's dream for your life are not synonymous. There is a big difference. And not everything about the American dream is bad. But there are parts of the American dream that have been emphasized, even within the church, over and above God's dream, God's vision for your life, for his church, for your part in his church. So we must know what the kingdom culture is and how it differs from the culture around us so that we can put it first and so that we can influence the culture around us from within. We would be in this world, but not of this world. So that's what we're talking about here. And there's two things that we have to make sure we don't do, and they're the two extremes. There's the extreme of assimilating with the culture around us and becoming just like it, not being distinguishable from the culture around us. That is not kingdom culture. There are vast differences between the kingdom culture and the culture around us. But if we assimilate, if we blend in, if we look just like everyone else, then we lose the opportunity to influence it. But on the other extreme would be rejecting it so wholeheartedly, separating from it, withdrawing from it that we lose influence and we're so separate that we can't influence the culture around us and so as you think about those two extremes I want you to kind of take a moment and reflect on that and say which one am I more susceptible to am I more susceptible to blending in and assimilating and becoming just like this culture around us or am I more susceptible for completely withdrawing from the culture around us and losing the opportunity to influence it. And I don't have any non-Christian friends and I don't go anywhere that isn't majority Christian already and I don't ever have to share my faith because there's nobody to share my faith with. Like that's one extreme. The other extreme 
would be it never crosses my mind to share my faith because I'm so focused on assimilating and not rocking the boat. And so as you think through that, let that kind of guide you through this series and where do you need to be? And I love this quote from Maxie Dunham, and it strikes me that Maxie Dunham, if you don't know, he was the former president of Asbury University. And Asbury is where this revival has been getting front-page news all across the country. Jesus is getting a lot of attention in the press, and, and these revivals, are there's, there's, Jesus' revolution movie is doing four times as well as they thought it would do in theaters. Like, there's some things getting stirred up, and it finds, I find it interesting that this is what he said a few years ago in a book that he wrote titled Christian Leadership, and we've been encouraging our, our up-and-coming pastors to read this, and I read this book, and he says this. He says, instead of the church desperately trying to elbow her way up to the tables of power, we can instead turn our attention to becoming, by our life and witness, an alternative voice to the madness around us. Since in Christ we have been reborn into the new reality of the kingdom of God, we can become ambassadors for peace in the midst of a violent world, models of civility and grace in the midst of a competitive society, conveyors of faith and hope in the midst of a cynical culture, and the embodiment of agape love to all peoples in the midst of an adversarial society. That's what Asbury is doing right now. That's, what, that's what's getting front page attention is that approach. That we don't have to get out a megaphone and elbow our way up to the seats of power, that we can influence the culture from within. That we can influence the culture by becoming, by our life and witness, an alternative voice to the madness around us. By becoming ambassadors of peace. By becoming models of civility and grace. By becoming conveyors of faith and hope. And by becoming the embodiment of agape love. That's the vision. That's the kingdom culture. That's God's vision for his church in this world. And so today's message answers the question, okay, Mark, what does that look like? How do we do that? And each week we'll answer part of that question, how do we do that? And the first message in this series is titled Christ-Centered. We do that by being Christ-centered. And here's your bottom line. I'll give it to you early. I'll give it to you often this week. Kingdom culture is Christ-centered culture. Kingdom culture is centered on Jesus Christ. It does not pass through Jesus every now and then as it swings from one extreme to the other. Kingdom culture is centered on Jesus Christ, on his life, on his ministry, on his teachings. And those who live a kingdom culture in the culture around us must live a Christ-centered life, a Christ-centered culture. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time before we dive into our scripture, fleshing out what do I mean by Christ-centered? I get that language from uh, the reveal survey that I actually mentioned last week, that they had surveyed all these thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people now, and they found that, that people within a church, within a Christian church, fit into one of four categories. And this is helpful to those that are helping lead churches, and it's helpful to you to understand that you might be in one of these four categories. You are in one of these four categories, and people around you are in one of these four categories. And they called it a spiritual continuum, and, and these four distinct categories are, first, those that are exploring Christ. There are people in churches that are not yet Christians. They're exploring Christ, and they would identify with a statement like this, I believe in God, but I'm not sure about Christ. My faith is not a significant part of my life. They're exploring. They're learning. The next group are those that are growing in Christ. They've made a profession of faith. They say, I believe in Jesus, and I'm working on what it means to get to know him. 
So they're growing in Christ, in their relationship with Christ. The next group is those that are close to Christ. I feel really close to him, and I depend on him daily for guidance. Those that are close to Christ, they feel close to him. They, they depend on him daily for guidance. And then there's a fourth group, and these are those that are Christ-centered, and they would identify with a statement like this. My relationship with Jesus is the most important relationship in my life. It guides everything I do, and I don't just say that. My behaviors reflect that. Behavior always reflects belief. And so it's not just the statement that we make, it's do our behaviors reflect that. And there are behaviors that fit with each of these. Things that, that people in these categories do and things that people in these categories probably don't do or that they could do in order to move along that continuum. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But it strikes me that our core value, one of our core values here at Linwood is that we would center our lives on the Word, right? We center our lives on the Word. That's why I'm always trying to tell people, read your Bibles, read your Bibles more, read your Bibles, talk about your Bible, what you read in your Bible with other people, and, and do this. This is how we make disciples. The Word is irreplaceable in our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. And Scripture tells us that Jesus is the Word made flesh. And so when we center our lives on the Word corporately and individually, and we make teaching and applying God's word to our lives, one of our top priorities, we're centering our lives on Christ because Christ is the word made flesh. And so these go hand in hand. Now I hope and we strive and I hope that you will pray that Linwood would be a safe place for somebody in any one of those four categories. That if you're exploring Christ, this is a great place to explore Christ, to learn more about him, to, to make a decision. We need unsaved people in our churches. We need to be reaching unsaved people for Christ, giving them a place to belong and helping them grow in their faith. And we need people who are growing in Christ and people who are close to Christ and people who are Christ-centered. And we need to be reaching them for Christ and helping them grow in their faith and making sure they have a place to belong. And I hope and I pray that this is a perfect place to move across that continuum, that we would be reaching people who are not necessarily Christ-centered yet and helping them grow, helping them become Christ-centered. And one of the other things that really emerged from the research here is that, that two of the biggest movements or the most critical movements are that first movement from being exploring Christ to growing in Christ. And this is where they finally get enough information. They go from being curious to being convinced that Jesus is who he said he was, that he died for their sins, that he was literally dead in the grave and rose from the dead, overcoming sin, overcoming death, and that they can have a personal relationship with him. So that first movement from exploring Christ to growing in Christ involves salvation. It involves making a, a profession of faith in Jesus. But the next movement, the, the next critical movement is the movement from being close to Christ to being Christ-centered. And, and not everybody makes this movement. It's not like this is a linear progression and you start on one end and three years later you're on the other end. There is often a very long plateau between being, when you get to where that point where you're close to Christ. And there's a lot of people in churches and there are a lot of people at Linwood and there are a lot of people in churches all across this community and all across the nation and all around the world that have been close to Christ for a long time but are not Christ-centered. Time doesn't necessarily have a factor here. And not everybody makes the jump. Not everybody makes that final transition to being Christ-centered. Because sometimes we decide we're close enough to Christ. Or the culture tells us you're close enough to Christ. Don't get carried away. 
Don't lose your mind. Don't become one of those Jesus freaks. Don't alienate your family. Don't, don't, don't become the poster child for Christianity. Just keep it private. And these are the lies that we've been told. These are the, lives that, the, the lies that we can believe if we're not careful. And so the bottom line is that kingdom culture is Christ-centered culture. And the shift, one of the best ways to know if you've made the shift from close to Christ to Christ-centered is to look at your prayer life. And only you can do this because only you know how you pray. But those that are close to Christ, their prayers sound more like, God, please bless my program. Or they, they pray, but they don't pray for God's will to be first in their life all the time. They pray for God to bless the things that are important to them, the things that matter to them. They pray for their family. They pray for all these kinds of things. These are all good prayers. Don't mishear what I'm saying. But the Christ-centered person at the bottom of every prayer and what really drives every prayer is, God, give me your program. I want your will for my life more than I want anything else. I want to say yes to you without even knowing what the question is. And we have to give our yes to God every single day. And, man, the, the family forum last week was so good. And I was so sad that so many people missed it. And that's a theme lately, and I don't want to get off on that tangent, but, like, so many times in the last six months, I have heard, man, that was so great. Sure wish more people would have been there. Like, we had 25 or 30 people to listen to Tom and Grace Ant's lifetime career ministries, 30, 40 years on the mission field, and they said something so powerful about saying yes to God. They say, yeah, saying yes to God is costly. But the cost of saying yes to God is nothing compared to the cost of saying no to God. I think the way Tom put it was the cost of saying no to God is infinitely greater than the cost of saying yes. And culture will not tell you that. Culture will tell you, just get enough of Jesus to make your life a little better. <laughs> like he's an additive, like he's a supplement. But Jesus loved us enough to tell us the truth. And the truth is good news. It is truly good news. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. It's on page 1535 if you need to grab one of our Bibles in the seats in front of you. Page 1535 if you're joining us online. We'll have this on the screen, but I always encourage you to have a Bible open. Underline some things, circle some key words, make some notes that you want to come back to. Because Jesus addressed this in this little passage of Scripture here. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. And the context is that hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. They were pretty excited that he had just put the Sadducees in their place. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't get along very well. And so they got together. And one of them, one of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, tested him tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, which every good Jewish boy and girl memorized Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It was one of the first things that they learned, first things that they said. They said it multiple times every day. Every Jewish person said this every day. So he's quoting some pretty well-known scripture. And there's no surprise here. Like this doesn't shock them. Now it's interesting that when, if you look up Deuteronomy 6, it says heart, soul, and might or strength. Jesus says heart, soul, and mind. Don't get tripped up on that either way. He's talking about the whole person. He's like, 
love God with your heart, with your soul, your mind, will, and emotions, where you make decisions, how you process information, and love the Lord your God with your mind, with your cognition, with your strength, with your labor, with every part of you. And a lot of times, pastors will will kind of focus in on each of those three words, and, and I've done that before myself, but the truth is, those aren't the three most important words in this passage. It's not heart, soul, and mind that you need to make, pay the most attention to. The three most important words in this passage are all, all, and all. All, all, and all. And do you know what the Greek or the Hebrew word for all means? It means all. This one's easy. This one you can know. You can impress people by telling them, I know some Greek, that the Greek word for all means all. The Hebrew word for all means all. It sometimes it's translated as whole or every, if that helps flesh out what all means. But it's like he's basically saying, love God with all your everything, right? Love God with all of your everything. Everything about you, all of it, love God with that. Sacrifice that for God. That's what love truly is. And so over 5,000 times in Scripture, we see this word, And it's almost always translated as all. Sometimes it's translated as every or whole. But this reminds me of kingdom power week one in our bottom line, that Jesus is either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. Jesus is either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. That's how lordship works. If something is my Lord, it's Lord over all, or it isn't Lord. It's an advisor or it's a director of a certain portion. But Jesus is to be Lord over all. He is to be Lord of all in my life, or he isn't Lord at all. And I think this is a blessing, because God is very, very interested in your wholeness, in your integrity. That's what that word integrity means, is not divided. An integer is a number that's not divided. It's a whole number. And in the Hebrew language, there was the word shalom, and they would use this as a greeting. And so we sometimes translate it as peace, which is certainly inherent in shalom. But also in shalom is wholeness, completeness, well-being. And so when you greeted somebody and you said shalom to them, you were wishing them peace and wholeness and wellness and completeness. And when you departed and you ended with that same greeting, shalom, you were blessing them as they go. And so perhaps you've seen the church signs that say, no God, no peace. Like when you know God, you know peace. When you don't know God, N-O God, N-O peace. Same with shalom. Like when you know God, when you understand him, when you're in a relationship with him, then you know peace, you know shalom, you know wholeness, you know wellness, you know completeness. And the better you know him, the better you experience those things in your life and the less it takes. I'm sorry, the more it takes to shake you, the more it takes to pull you away from that wholeness, that completeness, that wellness. And when you don't know God, you don't know that kind of peace. But the good news of the gospel is that we find true wholeness when our whole being is united in love, in agape love, in self-sacrificing surrender love with God. And then we get that vertical relationship right so we can move on to the second part that Jesus does here. And this is where he probably surprised them. In verse 39, he continues, he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, they didn't ask what were the top two commandments. The the guy asked, what's the 
greatest commandment. And Jesus answers them, and then he adds, and a second is like it. And by saying a second is like it, he's saying basically equal with it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And no one has ever gotten this right better than Jesus. He loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. He laid down his life for his neighbor. And so a Christ-centered life is a life that looks just like that. And when we find the shalom of God in our lives, then we are free to love others and to spread that shalom, that peace of God with others. When we get the vertical relationship right, we can get the horizontal relationships right. Because his love flows through us, we become conduits of his love to go into the world that so desperately needs it. And this requires a fundamental shift from being self-centered to being Christ-centered. Because the kingdom of God is a Christ-centered kingdom. The kingdom culture is a Christ-centered culture. The culture around us, the culture out there, the culture that's not in church on Sunday the morning because they're still recovering from what they did on Saturday night, the culture around us says it's all about you. And Jesus hangs on a cross and gives his life for you and says, no, it's all about me. And only somebody hanging on a cross can say it's all about me. There is no arrogance. There is no pride inherent in that. Jesus is saying, no, it's really all about me. It's making your life a Christ-centered life. Jesus is not something we add to our lives. He's not an accessory. In fact, Paul said we need to die to ourselves. We need to be crucified. That part of us that believes the lie of the world, that it's all about me, needs to be crucified. He said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. That sounds like a Christ-centered life. Because he loved me, and he gave himself for me. And lest we forget, lest the Galatians forget, at the end of that letter, he comes back to this all-important principle in Galatians 6, 14. He says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom or through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So there's, there's two crucifixions taking place. The world is crucified to us. It is dead to us. We are living for the kingdom. We are living for God. We are seeking to infiltrate that culture, to influence that culture, but that, that culture doesn't drive us. Christ drives us. And we have been crucified to the world. That was the teaching of the early church. And this happens at salvation, but it just doesn't happen once at salvation. I believe this has to happen every day. And maybe even several times throughout the day, if a certain temptation is really hitting you hard, you might need to remind yourself, no, 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 no. I don't have to do that because I've been crucified with Christ. The part of me that wants to do that, is tempted to do that, that has that unholy desire, is dead. It's been crucified with Christ. It no longer calls the shots. Christ does. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He gave himself for me. You might have to do this multiple times a day. I do this every day. I write it in my journal. I say right here at the beginning of the day, in simplicity of heart, oh, Lord, I surrender my whole self completely to you this day. 
to be your beloved son and faithful servant forever. I write that every single day. I need to write that every single day. I need to remember every single day that I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. And it's better if I can keep that in front of me. Andy Stanley puts it this way. You get to decide whether or not to follow Jesus, but you don't get to decide what it looks like. It looks like Jesus. It looks like love. We do get to decide whether or not we follow Jesus, but we don't get to decide what it looks like. If you're following Jesus, you look like Jesus more and more all the time. And Jesus looks like love. He looks like perfect love for God and perfect love for neighbors, and we can become more like that. So what drives spiritual growth? Well, the Reveal survey came up with four things that drive spiritual growth. These should come as no surprise. We talk about them all the time. I think they are in order of importance. So if you're not doing the first one, make sure you get that into your life, and then you can move on down. But the first one is personal spiritual practices. This is daily scripture. This is reflection on that scripture. This is prayer to God, journaling, worship, fasting, silence, solitude, all of these spiritual disciplines. When we have those in our lives, we're more likely to grow along that spiritual continuum. The next would be spiritual activities with others, community, serving together in and outside of the church, group, Bible studies, those types of things. When we're doing these spiritual activities with others, we have personal ones that we do alone, and we have those that we do with others. Spiritual beliefs and attitudes would be third. This is correct theology. We have to have correct theology. We have to think the right things about God. Doctrine matters. Correct biblical doctrine matters. It guides our activities. It guides our actions. And so we have to have correct spiritual beliefs and attitudes about who God is, about what, who he says we are, and how we are to treat others. And then the last would be organized church activities. These are the programs, the events, the Sunday morning worship, potlucks, outreaches, etc. We need all four. And we need all four in increasing measure. And as our lives become increasingly Christ-centered, they naturally are wanting to do these things more and more and more. Nobody has to twist us. It's not obligations. It's opportunities. And when the church talks about something, they talk about an opportunity that you want to say yes to, not an obligation that you might be tempted to try to get out of. This is how this works as we become increasingly Christ-centered. Now, time out real quick. You probably noticed these little spiritual life surveys when you came in and sat down. For those of you online, we've got a QR code that will uh, give you an opportunity to take this. We would like everyone who considers Linwood their church home. If you call Linwood Church your church home, whether you did that two minutes ago when you said, yeah, I really like this church. I came for the first time today, and I'd like to keep coming. Or you've been coming here for decades. There's some people who've been coming here for over 50 years. If Linwood Church is your church home, we want you to take this survey, but we really only want you to take it once. If you take it more than once, that's going to skew the data. Now, you can take it on the paper postcards. Uh, there's six questions, seven questions, sorry, seven questions, and then a place where you can write some more. If this is not enough room, <laughs> you can go to the online version, and there's no cap on how much you can say if you have suggestions, if you have something you want to clarify on here, uh, if you have ideas, uh, general comments, whatever. We do want to hear from you about those. But we also want to know, what are you doing? And how often are you doing it? Because this will be helpful to us in where we need to put the most emphasis and how we can help you grow in these areas. So please fill this out over the next three weeks. We're asking everybody to do it before the end of the month. But I would say don't wait. Do it now. Uh, do it online if you can so that we don't have to enter this into the online. But if you're not great online and you want to just do the paper, put it in the offering plate, you're welcome to do that. 
So now, as we transition back, you remember the spiritual continuum at the beginning and the four things that help us grow? We can kind of layer those over that spiritual continuum, and we can see that these are the things that help us grow across that continuum, that the more time we spend in personal spiritual practices, the more spiritual activities with others, the more our spiritual beliefs and attitudes become orthodox and accurate, the more organized church activities we have in our lives, those are all things that will help us to grow. And certain things help us move from one place to the other. I don't want to get bogged down into those, but I do want to ask you, which one of those four things, those four drivers for spiritual growth, could you use the most work on? Which one is kind of absent in your life? Is it the personal spiritual practices? Do those kind of take a back seat? And you're more of a, a doer and you're like, I just want to go and help and I want to go and serve. And, and if you're not spending time in God's word, reflecting on it, praying about it, you're missing out on something important. So I would encourage you to make that a priority. Maybe you're really good at that and you even get together with other people and talk about it, but you don't serve very much. You don't volunteer anywhere. And, and that would be an area where you could take the next step and grow in your faith. Maybe it's just making church a priority and, and being a part of that. Whichever one, which one do you need the most right now? And I think this overlaps with something that we're really intentional about, and I've talked about before uh, here in the last year, and as the worship team comes up and, and prepares to lead us in response, I've talked about these five spaces of discipleship, that discipleship really happens in five relational spheres. And we see this in Jesus' life. This is what I've shared with you before, that Jesus had a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God, and he would go off often to a solitary place to be alone with God and to pray. But he also had the three, Peter, James, and John. He was closer to Peter, James, and John than he was to any of the other disciples and to anybody else that we can tell in Scripture during his earthly ministry. He was really close with Peter, James, and John. He went farther with them. He took them places that he didn't take others, the Mount of Transfiguration, and so on. Then he had the 12, the, the disciples. You see that these are getting bigger, and, and the group of people is getting bigger. The 12 would be the 12 disciples. They followed him around everywhere for three years. He had a really close relationship with him. Then he had the 72 that were kind of a, another ring out. They knew Jesus. They were closer to Jesus than, say, the crowds that were coming to hear Jesus, but they weren't as close as the 12 who weren't as close as the three. Is everybody kind of tracking how this works? And then lastly, there were the crowds, that Jesus interacted with crowds. He preached to crowds. He did mass healings. He did mass feedings. He interacted with the crowds. And the same is true for us. We can take this model from Jesus or John Wesley, who the Wesleyan church is named after, had a similar format. And so for us, we must have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus. That has to be vibrant and fresh. I believe we need that every single day and throughout the day. We need to start our day with Scripture and prayer and reflecting on that Scripture throughout the day and being in prayer with Jesus throughout the day. We also have to have a band of brothers or a band of sisters. We call that our banding together groups here, but, but it's like those, that inner circle, three or four people maybe that you're really close with and you check in with on a regular basis and you talk to and when you talk to them you can lose track of time and, and they're spiritual brothers and sisters, right? Then you have a small group. This could be a Bible study, this could be a couples group, it could be a men's small group, it could be a women's small group, but it's a group of people that's, that's larger than that inner three that you know better than you know most and they know you better than, say, the next group, which would be sort of like a mission team or a missional community, sometimes we call this. Around Linwood, in our context, this might be LSM is its own missional group. The people in LSM know each other better than just the broader church. 
that they don't know each other as well as a small group would or as a banding together group. Does that make sense? Maybe seniors on the go, maybe our Kids Way ministry team. These different ministry teams, they do ministry together. They know each other better. It's a bigger group, and they don't have as close a proximity, but they know each other pretty well. Worship team would be another example. Like, we have so many examples of this. And then the last would be our church, our corporate worship, the crowds, the gathering. Most of you don't know everybody's name in this room. I think I do today. But maybe not. Maybe there's one or two. I'm not quite sure. But, but I know you, most of you know me. Most of you recognize each other. And so this is kind of how this works. So which one of those are you missing? Which one is weak in your life? Is it that vertical relationship with God one-on-one? Is it the three? You don't really have that. I'm not quite sure what he's talking about. Is it the 12? Is it the 72, a serving team, a, a team that you work with and interact with on a regular basis? Which one do you need more of? Because here's the deal. If we could put that slide back up. Life transformation is an inside job. It starts in the middle and it works its way out. It starts in the middle and it works its way out. It's not outside in. It's not just changing a few externals that's going to make us live a Christ-centered life. We start with him. We start with a profession of faith in him. We start with a desire to get to know him better. We grow in our relationship with Christ. We get to the point where we are close to Christ and we are depending on him daily for, for direction. And then we take that next step and we say, it's all yours, Lord. Every single thing. I say yes to you before I even know what the question is. So which one of those? Which one of those movements do you need to make? Because kingdom culture is a Christ-centered culture. And if you can honestly say, and I celebrate this, if you say, you know what, I'm Christ-centered, I'm there, then the Great Commission tells you to go and find somebody else and help them get there and to be intentional about that. Because making disciples is job one. It's everybody's job. And everybody can do it. And if you are Christ-centered, then we need you to be making disciples who will also make disciples who will make disciples and so forth. Now we've got baptisms today and I'm so excited about that. We have one planned in the first service and three in the second. But we also have an invitation. If you're hearing this and something's stirring in you and you want to make a response, then we got clothes you can change into. We'll get through the logistics. We got towels. We got all of that. If you want to be baptized today, don't let anything stop you. If the Spirit is welling something up in you, don't let anything stop you. You can meet with me or Pastor Zach over there by that door during the response song if you want to be baptized. But if you've already been baptized, then I just hope every single person hearing this takes a next step, makes a commitment, decides to grow somewhere, to get stronger somewhere. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Help us to respond in faith to it. Help us to become ever increasingly Christ-centered because your kingdom culture is a Christ-centered culture. Have your way in us now as we respond, as we celebrate these baptisms. And help us keep growing in faith and in our relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.